Well, good morning to you all. We will be reading out of 1 Peter chapter 3 today. And I was kind of glancing over the room before I came up here. And uh, I think there's enough life experience in this room to know what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, enough life lived. And we've been discovering in 1 Peter that we are travelers, we are foreigners. And life often doesn't go as we plan. Just doesn't, right? And in fact, rarely goes as we plan. And as we start to live life, we find that it doesn't go as we plan or should. And if we're not careful in our Christian faith, we can reduce the Christian faith down to a bargain with God. And it looks something like this. Lord, I trust you. I will follow you. I will serve you. I will obey you. But just don't let me suffer. I've heard it. I've experienced it in my own life. And then suffering comes in in the form of marriage, parenting, your health, finances, relationships, or, again, in our country, as we're starting to look at, war. And we evaluate our experience, and we try to ask this question, did I do something to deserve this? And if nothing comes to mind, we start to feel maybe perhaps disillusioned with God that he didn't hold up his end of the bargain that he didn't make. And the question I have for us today as we look at 1 Peter is, what if God has a purpose for suffering that's for a time we cannot see. We've got so many Christian books, again, talking about your best life now. What if the purpose of suffering is for a time we cannot see? First Peter so far, and it's kind of the tag team between Nathan and I, uh, we've been discovering that God cares very deeply about how we live out our Christian life as foreigners. We saw in chapter 2 that he cares about how we submit to governing authority cares very much about how wives submit to their husbands, how husbands are considerate and loving of their wives. He cares about how we as Christians are loving to each other. And before we get into verse 13, look at verse 12. It matters so much how we live, because, check it out, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is when the bargain starts to come in. If God sees me, then isn't he obligated to respond how I pray? Isn't he obligated to do what I ask if I serve him? We're going to see today, not necessarily, at least not on this planet. We're going to see that through suffering... And godly, of godly living, God accomplishes his greatest plans. He rewards us, and he prepares us for a time we cannot see. So, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. Let me ask the Lord to teach us, help us understand this text, and uh, we will just go right into it. Our Father, thank you for your, your word, how it changes us, because it's unchanging. And it has your power. So I pray today that you would help us understand it and apply it so that we can prepare our hearts for a time we cannot see. 
Lord, help us to filter our current earthly experiences through your biblical, eternal, heavenly truths and realities. We are weak, Lord, so we need your help to understand this, this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in verse 12, it says, The eyes of the Lord see all things. Verse 13, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you were blessed. Do not fear their threats, and do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who, get, who, everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that you, those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19. In that state, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So verse 13 kind of kicks off this section of scripture with a rhetorical question. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And generally speaking, we can avoid harm and the punishment that comes with doing wrong by peacefully seeking to do good. Now, we can avoid the suffering we're going to be talking about today generally by trying to do what's right. And today, we can all reflect in the mirror. We can all look at our life and go, if I had not done this, I would not be experiencing this. Today's passage is not about suffering for doing something sinful or foolish or just poor choices. This is not what it's talking about. Today's passage is talking about suffering for doing the right thing. And if you've lived very long, you may find that either at this point of your life or you have been at one point kind of jaded about this reality. Perhaps you've done the right thing and you still were wrong. These are some of the examples. I've personally known people who have done the right thing and got the wrong end of the deal. The unfaithful spouse gets the house of the kids. The dishonest coworker got the promotion. The cheating classmate got the good grade. I still remember that back in high school. The dishonest neighbor got the tax break. Uh, perhaps you stood against sin and were mocked for doing so, or your family kind of put a distance between you and them. 
And I want to be very thoughtful because we're online right now. Maybe you're listening online and we're, we need to be in, living in reality. There are people, refugees, running for their lives because they're associated with Christ. So what are we to do when the realities of this broken world are crashing in and we experience these types of suffering or harm as a result of following and just being associated with Christ? Because Peter knows this, that for many Christians, the biggest fear is an oppressive, wicked society and government that causes suffering for those who follow Christ. And as, as your pastor, I've heard this internal rumbling in the church family. We've had such freedom and such just all-out freedom and wherever and wherever and whatever we want to say and do. And there's just this under-rumbling fear that something's coming. I just hear it, and I hear you guys all talking about it. So I figured we'd just address it in the text today. So... Peter lays out the marching order for when Christians' biggest fears become a reality, suffering for Christ. And in order to accurately process the experience of suffering that we have, we have to listen to and obey his word. So you can see at the top of your outline, what are we to do when suffering for Christ? And we're going to see this starting in verse 14. The first thing in your outline is believe that you are blessed and you're rewarded in heaven even when your earthly circumstances don't show it. Let's read it. He says, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Look at that text again. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are. What? What? You are blessed. Is Peter crazy? Do we really believe? I, I know we say we believe the Bible, but do we really believe this part? Do we really believe, believe that? You are blessed. Where's Peter getting this thinking? Peter quotes from Isaiah a bunch in First and Second Peter. I guess back there. Katie, would you advance me real quick? He says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So Peter quoting often from Isaiah. He understood this. And he understood what King Jesus told him firsthand in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. This is the words of Jesus, by the way. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And he says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says that if you are persecuted because of my name, rejoice. And then he says, lift your gaze heavenward because great is your reward in heaven. So in other words, he's telling his audience, live for a time you cannot see. 
The blessed that Peter's mentioning here, and also the blessed that Jesus mentions in Matthew 5, is not the feeling of delighted. I feel so blessed. It is the position of highly privileged. Blessed are the ones who are living in God's favor, regardless of their earthly circumstance. And the reward is for a time we cannot see. This is called living by faith, friends. Christ is teaching us to adopt living for heaven and not living for this earth. And I would say that if, as a believer in Jesus, in the middle of suffering, if you're looking for a reward and blessing now, you run the chance of becoming very disillusioned with God and shipwrecking your Christian faith. Because the reality hits, in this life, we do not always get to see the reward of living for Christ through suffering. So he says, even if you should suffer, believe that you are blessed. Second thing we'll see is do not entertain fear. Fear is not the way for the Christian. He says this, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Now fear is the natural human response when suffering or pain comes for godly living. He says, don't do that. Don't entertain that. Don't even go down the road of what if. It's toxic. It will cloud all the things that you look into the world. And I would say this, if fear is a particular struggle for you, and it's an ongoing part of your flesh that comes up, I want to invite you to memorize Matthew chapter 6. I know people that memorize whole books of the Bible. You can memorize chapter 6. Put it, again, I was talking to Bob earlier. Listen to it in the car. Watch it on YouTube. You can actually just permeate your life with Matthew chapter 6. Making choices and living in a posture of fear is not for the Christian. But I would say this. If the text stopped there, telling you to stop it doesn't help you stop it. It's like my children coming in at night when they were little, and I'm afraid. Knock it off. Go to bed. That's why they usually go to mom, because I was not the one to comfort and care for them, right? But just telling you to stop it or knock it off doesn't help. The text goes on further. He says it's not for the Christian, but the cure is exalting Christ as Lord and King. Verse 15, but in your hearts, revere or honor Christ as Lord. The cure for fear and anxiety over our suffering, or anxiety over our suffering for righteousness, snake, is not good news. I'm just looking for some good news. It is not a good government or a president that I like. It is not good outcomes. It is not exercise, yoga. It is not a schedule that I can handle. It is not. Uh, anxiety coping techniques. It is not anything of that nature. These are all false roads for the Christian to deal with their fears and anxieties. Not only are they false roads, they can be devastating roads because it causes us to not deal with the real issue mentioned here in the text. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. The cure for a fearful heart is to honor or exalt 
Christ as king. Big God, you've heard it said, big God, little problem. Big problem, little God. Isaiah 8, we'll see it here, says this. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the ways of the prophets. Listen to this. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one that you are to dread. Now, according to this text, if you are consumed with a paralyzing fear that comes with maybe considering the future or experiencing hardship because of Christ, you don't have an anxiety issue. You have a lordship issue. The dominance of fear reveals the fact that he is not the Lord of that particular area of your life. Now, we have no guarantee about what's going to happen out there. We don't know what the wicked world would do to us. We do not have any idea if people are going to conspire against us. We have no guarantee to be free from pain or suffering or death. But Christian, listen to me very clearly. We do have control over our minds and our hearts and who we make the Lord or the master of them. We are commanded here to not give in to fear, but to revere or honor Christ as Lord. And we'll see in the rest of verse 15 that we're called to publicly declare our allegiance to him. Some of my favorite passages of scripture is in the book of Acts. And I love it where the apostles are communicating about Jesus and they're pulled aside and said, knock it off. And Peter and John said, hey, you can judge for yourself what we're saying, but what we've seen and heard, we cannot stop. And that's in chapter 4. In chapter 5, they were pulled in, arrested, and beaten. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from the house to house, they never stopped preaching and or teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So if he's set apart as Lord in our life, we will not and cannot stop speaking about him. Which leads us to this next point that we find in the second part of verse 15. If you're experiencing pain or suffering for being associated with Christ, anchor your beliefs in the scripture and be ready to share the hope that you have when the opportunity comes up. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. When you're in dialogue with family, friends, co-workers, cashiers, and anything spiritual gets brought up, you know for a fact that is God the Father at work in that situation. Believer, assume that is God at work because no man comes to Christ unless the Father works in them. So be confident that when spiritual things get brought up, act on it. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Now, was Peter ready when Jesus was having his a trial just before his crucifixion and he was warming himself around the fire? And he was asked, aren't you one of his? Was he ready? Answer, he was not ready. Text says in John 18, he went out with remorse and sobbed. He wept. 
Well, Peter wasn't ready then, but as the Holy Spirit's inspiring Peter to write this text, Peter's ready now. And let's face the fact, very few people will seek out somebody's suffering for their own foolishness. But when a born-again Christian believes they're blessed, they live for a time they cannot see, they believe God rewards them, they're not frightened by threats, and they live for the kingship of Jesus, two things happen. They are filled with hope, and God produces a curiosity in the heart of an unbeliever. Read it. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's curiosity. They ask you, but do this with gentleness and respect. So, hope in the believer, curiosity in the unbeliever. Colossians 4, 2 says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And he's catching what Peter says here. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. He goes on to say in 2 Timothy, again, we're just gonna, I feel like scripture is going to be what's going to comfort you when you're in a time of suffering. 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive. To do his will. So as we are living for the kingship of Jesus, we are filled with hope, and the world comes in with curiosity. We don't blast our opinions at them. We don't make them look bad. And we don't justify ourselves like, hey, what they said is not really true. We give them the reason for the hope that we have from Scripture. And what is that hope? It's what I read when we started this service here, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on this earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So our hope, friends, is eternal life. It's in Christ himself. And today, we as Christians are so concerned with keeping this physical life alive and not living for an eternal reward that the world doesn't even find us curious anymore. Think through what concerns most of us and what concerns the world, and it's the exact same thing. Curiosity's gone. We're called to be a peculiar people. 
people are, the world is supposed to be able to look at us and go, they care more about the kingship of a God they cannot see than about keeping their physical life going. Our hope in Christ and living for a time we cannot see is how God produces a curiosity in the unbeliever. Now, here's a quick warning for some of you who are very quick-witted and can fillet people with your words. He says, those that are really good at making people look bad, be gentle and respectful. The goal is not to win arguments. The goal is not to make people look bad. The goal is to point people to the hope that we have in Christ. And for those of you who really struggle with getting words out, I just want to say, the gentleness and respect, the how, is oftentimes how more important in what God uses than your ability to articulate exactly what you're thinking. Your heart behind it and how you go about sharing the hope is how God uses it. Verse 16, he says this, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, our conscience is designed uh, to convict us or uh, produce guilt or anxiety or despair when we live out of our sinful nature. And as believers in Jesus, on a very practical level, we keep a clean conscience when we live under the authority of Christ, when we live for his glory. But as we seek to live for his glory, seek to live holy lives under him, we can let the conscience of the unbeliever and the word of God convict their hearts and accuse them of the wrong. And our first response here typically is to justify ourselves. But, 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 but this verse is saying just keep a clear conscience and let their conscience and God work on them. Paul said to, second, said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, and endurance, my persecutions and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions that I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Look where his hope is. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you hear that? Everyone. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. In other words, as you're going through suffering, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're a child that grew up in the Iwana clubs or a leader in the old Iwana clubs, you'll know this one. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what's the good work? Verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. That's the word of God. Verse 17, 
It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So if you're living for the kingship of Jesus or striving for that, if you're sharing the hope that you have and you are suffering for it, you can conclude that the hardship that you are facing is part of God's will. Let me repeat that. If you are living for the kingship of Jesus, are striving for that, and you are seeking to give an answer for the hope that you have and you're enduring hardship, you can conclude that what you're facing is part of the sovereign hand of God. Stop striving against it. Can you receive it? Now, sometimes there is unjust suffering that really makes no sense on an earthly level. But it makes all sense on a heavenly level. We're going to see this in verse 18. Because what do we do when we face suffering and we can't make sense of it? When we don't wallow in it, we turn to Christ. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. For what purpose? That is to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So, we see in this text that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was like us in every way, yet without sin. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So the next time suffering comes into our life and we can't make sense of it, let's remember the fact of this. Jesus never sinned. We sinned. He took on our needed suffering so that we might be brought to God and have his righteousness. That, on an earthly level, is unjust. But can you see on an eternal, heavenly level, the purpose That's to bring us to God. So, he suffered for a divine purpose, and he accomplished our salvation to bring us to God. And he is the only way to be declared forgiven and free from the penalty of our sin. So in case you're tempted to sanitize the gospel, it says he was put to death in the body, meaning he was executed for you and me. He suffered. He didn't just quickly die. He suffered for the payment of our sin. So the next time you're overwhelmed with the potential of suffering or you're in the middle of suffering, remember what Christ's death and suffering produced. It brought the forgiveness of sins. Now, We're forgiven through Christ, but let's face the fact, until we take our last breath, what are we going to struggle with? Sin. Yep. And so we know that the only way to be free from the struggle of sin is to take our last breath. So as a Christian, and I have these in the PowerPoint here, but as a Christian, if you're armed with the goal of being delivered from sin and that goal is accomplished or achieved through death, the threat of death no longer carries weight. Did you hear that? 
So is your goal to stay alive in the body as long as you can? Or is your goal to be free from sin? As a Christian, I'm going to rephrase it two other ways. If the bulk of your time and attention are given to keeping this body alive, suffering and threats will always have control on you. Think through suffering and people who have suffered for Christ. If the bulk of your time and attention is about keeping this earthly body rolling, suffering and threats will always have control of you. But the opposite is true. If the bulk of your time and attention are seeking to be free from sin, the threat of death honestly grows weaker and weaker. And the death of Jesus paid for our sins forgiveness, but the passing from this life into the next means we will be free from the struggle of sin. Now, the end of verse 18 says, he was put to death in the body, meaning he was executed, but made alive in the spirit. Um, the, the text says he was made alive in the spirit. I believe this is a reference to Romans 8.11. I don't think his spirit died. I actually think that it was the spirit that raised him up from the dead. Um, so I think it was the Holy Spirit that had the power to do that and did that. Now, if you look at verses 19 to 21, I believe these are, per, or 19 to 22, I think these are a parenthesis in the text because you can see in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since Christ suffered, picking up from verse 18, arm yourself with that mind. So these verses, um, it, some have said these are the most vi- difficult verses in the Bible or at least the New Testament, to understand. But Peter gave them as an example to his audience. They are inspired, and so we're going to just plow through these and seek to understand them. And so if you happen to disagree with me, I love you, and I accept you, and that's okay. But let's pick it up. Verses 19, it says this. In that state, that is the Spirit, he went and made proclamation. That's another word is herald or preach or announce publicly. To the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So God told Noah in the book of Genesis to build an ark as a way of escape from the coming wrath of God carried out through a global flood. And over that hundred year time frame, the spirit of God was working with Noah to proclaim coming judgment as he built the ark. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, among the eight. Now, who are these spirits that he went and made proclamation to? Well, there's really kind of two options I see here, and I'm not sure which one. But the first one is this. We know the entire population, minus eight people, were disobedient to the message he proclaimed for that 100 plus years. That they died in the flood. And that we are a spiritual being in a physical body, right? So we know, perhaps, that those spirits are now in prison waiting final judgment. But at the same time, we know Ephesians 6 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and the spiritual world. So we know if Noah was building an ark and 
communicating that God's judgment was coming for a hundred years and nobody outside his wife and three sons and their wives responded, you know there was a demonic force at work hindering some form of his message. So whether this is people during that time, all the population minus eight, or the demonic world, it says they were disobedient spirits. And we see that in the, in the form of the spirit, Christ in his spirit proclaimed victory over sin to this disobedient spirit world. Now verse 20 says, In it, the ark, only a few were saved through water. Now we're reading from the NIV. I think the ESV, English Standard Version, translates a little bit better. It says, They were brought safely through the water. That is by the ark. Now the flood waters did not save Noah and his family. We can all conclude that. That God saved Noah in the ark as he was carried safely through the judgment waters that brought death. Now in verse 21 he says, This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Again, I think a better translation, the ESV, says this baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, baptism is not really an English word, but, so it's not something that we really have a, a concept of in our culture, but baptism essentially means something to be immersed or identified with. And saving is this a concept of protecting or delivering or keeping safe or rescue. So we know from Romans 6 and 1 Corinthians 12, that when we believe that Christ died and rose again, both of those passages teach that we, when we believe, God's spirit comes into our life and spiritually baptizes us. And Ephesians 1 says, seals us, guaranteeing our eternal inheritance. He identifies us with Christ. I do not believe this passage is saying that we are saved by water baptism. In fact, Hebrews 11 goes on to say this, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The Bible clearly teaches in other passages that salvation is by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Noah and his family being in the ark were allowed to pass through safely the judgment waters of God. And just as the flood waters did not save anyone, neither do baptism waters. In fact, he makes a point here. He says, it's not the type of water that removes dirt, but the pledge of a clear conscience before God. So he's making the point that it's not this idea that you can somehow utilize water to spiritually cleanse yourself and then therefore have your sins forgiven. It's through faith in Christ. But water baptism is a profound physical representation of escaping the judgment of God by being placed in Christ so that as God judges the world, he judges, judges Christ, and then we, therefore, are carried through the ark of Christ. So I'm going to ask this question. You may have all the furniture in the room. You may have heard all these things. Are you trusting 
or relying on are in the ark of Christ who carries you through the judgment of God? There's a question for you. Now, the last thing to do while we are experiencing suffering for following Christ, he picks it up in verse 22. Well, at the end of verse 21, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He further clarifies it is for what Christ has done. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So our last point here is this. What do we do when we're suffering for Christ? Fix your mind on the reality in heaven. Now, you might be tempted to think that what you're facing is the most real thing. That the one harming you has the most power over you. It's just not true. Because since his resurrection, look at the text. It says that he is sitting in the posture, position of absolute authority. And he says he's got complete authority over the angel or demon world, over all authorities... And whoever claims to have power over your life at the moment. For the Christian, when suffering comes, there ought to be a warm smile. Knowing that your king is on the throne. And nothing comes across your path unless at first goes through his hand. If you're suffering for doing good, you can renew your mind with this. Ephesians 1.11. He, God, works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So, looking at your outline, friends. Would you join me as followers of Christ? To live for a time we cannot see? Let's be people who believe that we are blessed and rewarded in heaven even when earthly circumstances don't show it. Let's live as blessed people. Let's not live as victims. Let's stop the victim mentality. It's gross. It really is. It's not eternal, and it's shameful as a follower of Jesus. We are blessed and rewarded. We have rewards for a time we cannot see as we live for him and face hardship. Number two, don't entertain fear. Fear is not the way for a believer. We're not to be driven by other people's threats. Number three, exalt Christ as Lord. If you've got anxiety over issues or fears or stresses going on, the cure is big God, little problems. We have a lordship issue. Exalt Christ as Lord. Number four, anchor your beliefs in Scripture and be ready to give a hope that you have. But do this graciously. The whole point is the point to our hope, not to win arguments. Number five, Arm yourself with this. What did Jesus accomplish through his suffering? Your salvation. So if you're experiencing suffering, God's accomplishing something for an eternal purpose. Number six, don't let your earthly experience drive your interpretation of reality, but fix your mind on the heaven reality and let that interpret your earthly experience. So, friends, this is how we are to live in light of the suffering that we receive for following Christ. And if you're in that boat today, I hope that I've been gentle enough with you. I hope you don't feel like I'm making light of it. I hope you 
are encouraged by this, that he's given us some clear path to walk in when we experience this. But if you're not experiencing suffering as you follow Christ, can you tuck this away? I've included a ton of scripture here because I believe the word of God is what the spirit of God uses in our lives to comfort us and to keep us walking with him in this journey. You don't need to remember something clever I've said. You need the word of God to comfort you in this. So, I'm going to close in prayer. Worship team's going to come up and we're going to sing. And we're going to close our our time in prayer today, after they come and sing, we're going to close our, our time with prayer with this. Lord, help us to appropriate your word in these areas so that we are ready for when that time of suffering comes as followers of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for for not leaving us to try to figure this out. Lord, your people for 2,000 years have been suffering for being associated with your name. Lord, today there are people in our world that are truly suffering. Lord, I think through even some of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are running for their lives today, who are hiding. Would you comfort them? Lord, would you help them to know what Peter said here, to not fear threats, but set apart Christ as Lord. Lord, prepare our hearts for the day that we will face hardship for being associated with you. Lord, in the end, all of it, would you help us to remember and believe that we are blessed and we have a reward in heaven? Help us to believe what Jesus says, that great is our reward in heaven. We remember uh, Revelation 22, Lord, that you're coming quickly and you have your reward in hand. Lord, help us to be faithful this week and ready for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with us and we'll sing.